WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. We've got a lot to talk to tonight on the show. You will hear a feature about the evolution of dubstep uh, in excitement for Electric Forest going on this weekend. We'll also uh, be talking about the ban on synthetic marijuana, also known as K2, uh, with Senator Rick Jones later in the hour. And also, if you wait until right before 8, I'm going to get really, really personal with you because I actually contributed to the Michigan Storytelling segment this week. Um, and it's a story about my grandfather. So if you want to wait all the way until then, that would be so lovely because I would love to share that story with you. But first, a group of MSU students gave up things that most college students couldn't live without. They did it for a month and documented their journey along the way. Here in the studio are members of the documentary Thrive with Less. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. So let's go around the table and introduce yourselves and uh, tell us what you did as part, of, as part of the film. Well, I'm Colin Marshall, and um, one of the, the biggest challenges for me was to give up um, social media and to give up um, going out to eat. Those are two things I always do and take for granted. All right, so let's take, let's actually, actually we should step back a moment. Someone tell me what this film is about, so I guess it'll make more sense as to what was hard for you guys to give up. Okay. Um, I'm Matt, and I served as a director and producer for the film. Um, and the film looks at living minimally in what we've deemed as kind of an excessive culture. So looking at the way that our society has become very consumption-driven and you know driven towards having things as opposed to having experiences and things like that. And we all just kind of got sick of that and wanted to do something to change our lives and you know, possibly change opinions elsewhere, too, about that whole experience. So we challenged ourselves, but we also looked at other people that, you know, make minimal choices every day and how they live their lives. And what types of things did you have to give up for a month? Um, my name is Josh. I was also a co-director with Matt. Um, and we broke it down into six um, specific challenges that we all, as college students, saw in our lives. Um, the first was um, shelter. We all quarantined a section off of our house, just kind of showing that, we can live fine and well without this extra space. Um, and then another was transportation, where we did not drive within two miles of our house. So that that was public transit or biking or walking. Um, we found other ways to get around. And then uh, one, a big one was materialism, and it was mainly in clothing, where we limited ourselves to four shirts and one pair of pants for the month, um, which was different levels of difficulty for all of us. And then we had no eating out, um, didn't use uh, social media for the month, and then took time to actively pursue what we're passionate about and not just what we have to do. What was the biggest thing that you took away after you, you did that for a month? What was the biggest thing you learned um, having, having to give up those things? And you say, pursue your passion. So what kind of things did you learn meant something to you? I think it was it's hard to pick like any one thing for me. Um, it really just changed the way I looked at the whole world around me. I mean, I definitely think that it affected my decision making. I definitely eat out less. I definitely drive less. Definitely, I'm giving away like three bags of clothes. Um, so all those things did happen, but it's more just like I'm more conscious of like the decisions that I'm making and the effect that they have on myself, on other people, the world around me, and all those sorts of things. And it's, it's hard to kind of define it in a tangible way. But at the same time, I, like it's something that I think about literally every day too. So it's kind of weird. Does anyone else want to share the the hardest thing about the project and and, and something that you really took away from it? Uh, yeah, I mean, more kind of just like bouncing off Matt's thing. Like it's so conscious now in everything that I do. Um, in terms of like, you know, do I have a, a beat up pair of shoes? You know, Josh's shoes are amazingly beat to, to heck right now, but he won't get a new pair because he knows that he can, you know, he can manage with what he's got. And that's, I think, a great um, model for, like, can I still continue using what I have or, you know, do I actually need to go buy something new? And if I don't, then I'll just keep using it till it's unusable. And Josh did hold up his feet in the air in the studio, and I didn't notice. What kind of shoes are those? Are those Toms? They're like knockoff Toms. Knockoff Toms, and they like the whole sole is just like flapping out the bottom, and he's and it's stuck together with duct tape from the top to the bottom, but the rest yep. of it's just kind of flapping around. I mean, it does the job. Keeps <laughs> my foot off the pavement. Great. 
So not only as part of this documentary did you guys give up some things to live minimally, um, but you also profiled some people, um, one of which I was really interested in is uh, you interviewed a guy uh, named Jay Schaefer as, as part of the Tiny House Company. Can someone tell me about Jay and, and his company? Yeah, Jay, uh, Jay runs a company called Tumbleweed Tiny House Project, um, and basically the idea started as, as – Oddly enough, as a personal challenge for him too, he kind of got fed up with uh, with living in excessive space. So he built a house that was about a hundred square feet and lived in that and lived in spaces of similar size for about so ten years. By a hundred square feet, for those that may not think equate numbers to space, like how like how big would you explain that to be? Uh, e- easily smaller than an MSU dorm room. Um, and that's an entire house. Yeah, and that's his entire house. And it, I mean, the space is used very effectively. And it, we went we went down to Butler University and checked out one of the houses, and it's definitely like livable. There's a living room, there's a bathroom, a kitchen, a place to sleep, all those sorts of things. But it's just very like it's the essentials for that. You know, it's not one of those fancy shower heads that comes at you in all directions or anything like that. It's it's a very straightforward shower, a straightforward kitchen, all that kind of stuff. Tell me about the other people that you profiled. Um, we talked to um, a guy, Brendan Sinclair. He is uh, he works for the MSU Student Organic Farm, um, and he does a lot of farming as well. He also lives in the co-op system in Lansing. Um, we talked to one of Josh's friends. Yeah, my friend James. He works at Spin Cycles in Old Town, um, and he just like we, he we looked at him um, as a commuter bicyclist, um, and he just has really like decided to bike and not drive just to get a better sense of his surroundings and be more engaged in his community. And, and I, I actually watched the full documentary, guys. Oh, I want to let you know that. <laughs> thank you. Um, and what I found interesting about what he had to say was, and I, this is right when I was in the middle of reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book for our listeners that aren't. It's a book about this guy who um, he travels across the country with his son on a motorcycle. And it's kind of a, a philosophical type story where it's, you know, a travelogue along with a lot of philosophies about life, but it starts and, and how the book starts is he's talking about riding on his motor- motorcycle and he's like, the beautiful part about this is that, you know, you're, you, you don't drive on the highway, you do all these backgrounds. So you see the country in a very different way, but when you look at those highways, all those people in their car, they just look so bored and they're doing the same thing over and over and they're stuck in this comfortable environment. And the beautiful thing about the motorcycle is you feel that air, you can see that road beneath your feet, you know, and, and, and when I, when you interviewed that guy from Spin Street Cycle, he said something similar. He's like, the beautiful thing about this is you really get connected to your surroundings when you're mm-hmm. biking, you know, to, to work every day. And it, it's, it gives you a new perspective on life, and it's just very refreshing. So I thought that was a really cool point that he made. Not only is it, oh, environmentally friendly, but it's, you know, the way that he viewed biking was, was very different as well. Right. Yeah, I think that that was something that translated, I mean, definitely in the biking aspect of it, but even in the other things, too. I just found myself feeling more present and connected with the world around me because I'm, you know, I'm not constantly checking my Twitter feed on my phone or something like that. Like, one of the things that I've learned is just to, like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do that thing. If I'm going to check Facebook, I'm going to check Facebook and then I'm going to be done with it and not try to do, like, all these different things and just, like, really put my full attention into whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So for people... I think you. How many views do you have you had so far from people watching your documentary? Is it three thousand? Or I think I read somewhere? last week checked. It was a little over forty two hundred. Forty two hundred. Okay. So what what is the biggest thing that you want people to get out of watching your documentary? Um, I think. Well, I think for each of us, it's, it's a little bit different. I want people to kind of translate the message and, and see it how how it fits into their own life. Um, to, for them to be kind of become more aware of, you know, what is their level of consu- consumption or, you know, like maybe is there a, a nugget of wisdom that from one of the subjects we interviewed that, you know, they could kind of hold on to for a week and reflect on something like that. So it's a, it's, it's a movement for, um, change interpersonally. And I, I think socially as well, just to kind of look at our society and say like, how much are we consuming? Yeah. I think it's a lot about looking at what you're doing, how does that affect the world? And we're not really asking people to, you know, call out to their senators or, like, you know, do anything crazy political like that. We're just asking people to look at themselves inwardly, think critical about their own lives. And I think in doing that, that does affect the world around us, too. And I know you guys recently had a screening at Gone Wire. Do you guys have any other screenings coming up in the near future? Uh, we don't have anything planned right now. Um, we are looking at applying for film festivals and stuff like that. Uh, the deadline for East Lansing Film Festival is coming up. So we'll be in that. And I think that 
we're starting to have that conversation now. We wanted to get the first one out of the way. And uh, I mean, I know we all want to show this to as many people as possible and getting to like actually interact face to face with people surrounding this film has been a really great experience. So I think we're looking at how do we make that possible? So, Well, in the studio is Colin, Matt, and Josh. They're a part of the documentary Thrive With Less. If you want to check out the documentary, you can go to thrivewithless.com to see what they've been up to as well as links to the documentary. So Colin, Matt, and Josh, thank you so much for coming in tonight and talking to us about Thrive With Less. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. This weekend is the music festival Electric Forest, which will bring thousands of people to Michigan to listen to the best electronic music has to offer. Up next is a story by Pat- Patrick Rulig about the evolution of dubstep here on Impact 89FM. Welcome to today's tutorial on dubstep production. Typically, a tempo of 140 beats per minute is selected. First, we begin with a simple kick and snare pattern, like so. What is dubstep? Well, according to udubstep.com, dubstep is one of the fastest growing types of music in the world. Dubstep is a new form of electronic music that combines heavy bass with samples, synthesizers, keyboards, turntables, and hard-hitting drum tracks. But let's hear from an actual dubstep artist, Dave Myers. Dubstep, it's like a new form of music, newly discovered form of music that's been around for a while, but is definitely just gained a lot of popularity lately um pretty much just combines taking the most dirty type of bassy synthy sound next it's time to add some hi-hats and cymbals to fill those spaces add some modulated bass lines and be sure to make them heavy trying to get a really, really head-bobby feel to them, almost. Like, um, I mean, original dubstep kind of started off as more of a mellow, um, kind of layback, relaxing type of uh, music, but as it evolved, it became more and more, I guess, grimy is what they'd call it. Why not try adding a synth lead in a higher register? Perhaps some sound effects or pads. Almost as if you could just create the most horrible sounding noise and put a melody to it and a beat to it and slow it down to a really slow tempo and you'll get dubstep almost. I mean, that's pretty much what it is in the general (laughs) definition. And now you are ready for the most important part of any filthy dubstep anger. The drop. Dubstep originated in South London, but has quickly spread to other areas of Western Europe and North America after initially getting some publicity on BBC Radio. It is a fast-becoming mainstream form of dance music around the world. Dubstep is thought to have evolved out of Jamaican dub music. The Jamaican sound systems emphasized disco-type sounds with reproduced bass frequencies underlying. This eventually gave rise to the dub variety of reggae music that had features like sub-bass, where the frequency is less than 90 hertz and is really deep, two-step drums, and distortion effects. The name dubstep was first coined to apply this bass-driven electronic music in 2002 in South London. And if you really want to scare their audience... Try bringing the levels down and then take... Ammunition Promotions, who run the club forward, are thought to be the first to use the term dubstep to describe this style of music. The club was instrumental in the formation of dubstep music because it was really the first venue that dedicated to playing the genre. In 2003, DJ Hatcher began to give a new direction for dubstep on Rinse FM using 10 dubstep plates, which was a reggae style, to form a dark, clipped, and minimal sound that is largely used in dubstep today. Today, the most common characteristic of dubstep is what is referred to as a wobble bass. A wobble bass is a new creation of electronic music where bass notes are extended and manipulated digitally with low-frequency oscillators and other filters. A wobble bass is any type of bass, and what creates the wobble is just a simple LFO, and you just put a filter on it, and all it does is just let 
the higher parts of the bass come in and then fade back out. So it's almost like you're letting the trebly part of the bass in and then pushing them back out. So you're only letting the deepest bass in and then you just pretty much bring in the higher amount of bass and it just wobbles up and down. So it's, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. But it's all bass just kind of coming at you. And then you can, you can, you can change the speed of your LFO um, so that you get a different kind of rhythm to the wobble. And it, it's definitely one of the things that uh, a lot of dubstep incorporates into the music. What we are going to do this time, in light of recent trends in the heavy dubstep scene, is put about a million different progressively crazier sounds in. And it should sound something like this. Oh, wait. No, something like this. The bass drop is what made dubstep as popular as it is in the first place, and it's when the wobble bass is most prevalent. Typically in the bass drop, the percussion will freeze and the existing track will start to fade into the background. The drop is the point in the track where the main bass wobble or bass synth comes in, and I mean, it's where the track's in full force, you know. Almost like you could build it up with a drum roll and uh, build it up for a few bars and then out of nowhere just drop everything on you and it just kind of explodes almost. And, you know, a lot of people, it just, it'll just it just hit you, you know. The drop is where it really gets introduced to the, the, the main melody, the main, the main beat of the track. All dubstep is 140 BPM, so I just set the metronome to 140, and everything, I mean, a basic dubstep drum track is just a kick and a clap, or a kick and a snare, just kick, clap, kick, clap, and then you'll just come up with a basic melody around that. You can come up with anything. It could be four notes, or it could be really complex. It could be fast. It could be slow. You just start a melody, and then you just start adding to the melody a little bit, and then you'll start to kind of come up with, like, a bass line for it that sounds pretty grimy. And then you just kind of just build up that melody and then you drop the bass. And then you can start to add different elements of the melody that you had in your buildup while the bass is playing. And that'll kind of just keep it going and moving. And then you just kind of mix it up and redrop it and drop it different ways. And uh, that's kind of how I work on my stuff. Percussionist and now avid dubstep listener Donnie Cutting was introduced to dubstep in a very unique way. The first time I heard dubstep music, I was actually at a concert for uh, a band I like called August Burns Red, um, which is actually like a, a metal, almost like a math metal group, and a lot of hardcore like breakdowns and no, almost no electronics in their music. And one of the bands that was on before them is a band called Enter Shikari I'm from England. So they opened up their set, and you know they have. You know, guitar chords ringing out and some drumming going on, and then all of a sudden there's just this huge drop, um, which is all, like, electronics and all these crazy sounds going on. So the first time I heard it, it was actually live at a concert, so it was really loud, lots of bass. Um, and it surprised me, to be honest. Like, it was the, one of the most surprising moments I've ever had at a concert, and I liked it. It was really high energy. Um, something I'd never heard before, and they they had a really cool mix of putting that together uh, with some you know, more traditional electronic instruments, I guess. Um, so it was just kind of unique. Something I'd never heard is really cool. Dubstep has changed a lot just in the couple of years that I've kind of uh, been aware of it. Now it's you're, you're hearing it in a lot more uh, like top forty songs because people realize that there's a a market out there for it that that people are picking up on it slowly and starting to like it. So what you hear in a lot of these like top 40 songs, it'll be a lot more straightforward, a lot more cut and dry. It still has the elements of most dubstep songs, um, but it's not the the most complex that you'll hear out there. Because if you if you put too much into it, people aren't going to like it because it's too much for them. They don't. It doesn't make sense to them. 
So I've seen that where it's almost like kind of simplified over the last couple of years, um, just so that it's more appealing to a more generic crowd. You hear it in movies a lot now. You hear it on the radio. So Nick Dubstep's here to stay. This has been Patrick Rulig with the Evolution of Dubstep. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Last week, Governor Snyder cited a bill to ban the sale of synthetic marijuana in the state. Here to talk about the bill is Senator Rick Jones. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. So to, to begin, can you kind of describe what is synthetic marijuana? I, I know it's been called K2 or spice, but what exactly is it? Well, in the first place, it is not marijuana. It is a very scary synthetic drug that is made... Ma- mainly in Asia. It's brought in and sprayed onto leaves and flower petals and sold either as an incense or a potpourri, and it's marked not for human consumption. It's sold under many brand names. Some of the most common are K2 and Spice. And how does it affect the body if someone ingests it? In many different ways. The problem is nobody knows how much synthetic drug they're getting because it comes in all sorts of uh, strengths. Uh, we've had reactions in this state all the way from people going to the hospital with hearts racing out of control, people in convulsions. Uh, we've had a number of people have to go into psychiatric units because they had uh, psychological problems that needed treatment sometimes for a long period of time. And we've had all the way up to creating violence in some people. In fact, Uh, It's alleged that a a young man killed his father with a baseball bat and half-killed his mother and brother while he was on this substance. Wow. And I know uh, earlier, I think last month, uh, there was a lot of people talking about the bath salts incident in Florida in which someone um, allegedly took um, what is called bath salts, which is um, what people call a designer drug, um, and and ate someone's face. Uh, is that is say, in the same kind of um, realm as... So we're talking about synthetic marijuana, which is what people call a designer drug, where people are using these chemicals uh, to create a, a drug that is basically available to anyone. Um, do we have issues with basalt salts here in Michigan? Oh, absolutely. Uh, bath salts were being sold openly uh, all the way from Detroit up to the Upper Peninsula. And that has been outlawed. It is a felony to sell. It's an extremely dangerous drug. It causes extreme paranoia. And the uh, uh, under this state, people uh, sometimes commit suicide, and there have been a few cases of homicide. And they nicknamed it basalts because it is crystalline in nature and looks like that. But, of course, it has nothing to do with the common basalts. And how long have, have synthetic drugs, or um, what we call designer drugs, been sold here in the States? Uh, for quite a few years, and uh, it just seemed to have taken Michigan by storm over the last year, year and a half, and it's gotten much worse. And, and have other states banned designer drugs? I know that, so we, we, recent, we just did last week. What about other states? What have been their stance on it? Other states are banning the synthetic drugs, and the American military has banned it. It has become extremely dangerous. Uh, As you stated, we had that case where a man uh, turned into a zombie, you know, a flesh-eating zombie, and the police had to shoot him to stop it. It's, It's a terrible product, and everyone needs to understand that this is not marijuana, this is not uh, something safe at all, uh, such as, uh, you know, uh, uh, some other uh, medicine or something that somebody would take for pain, such as an aspirin. This is a very dangerous synthetic drug. And who, who was able to buy it before? Unbelievable that people could buy it. We actually had cases where 10-year-old children were buying it. Uh, you know, they couldn't buy cigarettes, but they could buy... Uh, synthetic drugs. They were sold in gas stations. They were sold in uh, convenience stores, head shops, uh, all over the place, openly, 
And unfortunately, for a while, they were sold legally. I understand there was a legal loophole where manufacturers uh, would continue to sell designer drugs after tweaking the chemical makeup, saying, oh, this isn't what we're selling before, because they would tweak what was actually in it, um, and then keep on selling a product that was very similar. Can you tell me more about that loophole? Well, what would happen is rogue chemists would change the molecules on a synthetic drug, and so the chemical that was outlawed would be changed and then they could again start selling. So what we've done is we have empowered the director of community health. Uh, If she gets a new case of some new drug out there, she would call the state police crime lab. They will uh, find out what the chemical formula is. And within just a few days, she will call in the board of pharmacy and they will declare that it is illegal to sell in Michigan. So now that it is illegal to sell these these drugs here in Michigan, uh, bath salts, K2, spice, these designer drugs, how are we going to regulate um, making sure that these don't get on the market? Well, you know, there's always going to be underground sales of any drug, whether it be cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and, of course, these synthetic drugs. And it's, it's very important that parents uh, check their children and talk with their children to make sure they're not using these horrible things and uh, you know we it's edu- it's all about education when people find out the reactions that they're getting hopefully uh, these drugs will go away and be very little use I can remember when I grew up in the 60s people were using LSD mm-hmm. and then when they found out that people thought they could fly and jumped off of buildings uh, people stopped using it and, and I'm curious, what age group was was purchasing uh, these synthetic drugs the most here in Michigan? Uh, from the reports I got, it was mainly college students, but we've had reports of children as young as 10 walking in and buying uh, this synthetic drug. And, and that's terribly unfortunate that somebody would be that greedy to sell this stuff to, to a child. And... When you're talking about some of these side effects that it's affecting these people, which led to 180 hospitalizations this year alone here in Michigan, I'm I'm curious, were people, do you think that people were trying to uh, get these drugs because it was easier to access? They were sold in convenience stores versus having to go to the underground market to get real marijuana versus the synthetic marijuana. Do you think it was an issue of access that was making it um, that most people were using it? I think a lot of people felt that because it was legal to sell, that it was safe. And that's a very, very unfortunate thing because it is it is absolutely not safe. And, you, you know, the people that want marijuana are, are getting it in Michigan by getting the medical marijuana. There, There is absolutely no reason in my mind ever to put a synthetic chemical in your body. The uh, scientists that first invented this, at Clemson University was doing an experiment and he has stated clearly this is not something I meant for human consumption if you put it in your body you're playing Russian roulette and what was it originally made for Uh, they were experimenting with substances Uh, it's my understanding that uh, they thought perhaps uh, they could do something with MS or some other diseases and but it, the product uh, when he invented it, it and people started using the chemical formula to make this synthetic drug for smoking he he said you know you're playing russian roulette this should never be put in your body and anybody that uses it is an idiot and that is a quote mhm now when does this law uh, to officially ban synthetic marijuana here in michigan when does that law go into effect uh, it's in effect uh, July 1 for many of the substances that haven't been banned previously. Some of the substances were banned previously, uh, and bath salts certainly is one of them. It is a felony to sell it, a felony to possess it. I would hope that your listening audience would realize that this is a, a very dangerous thing, not only to their health, but to their future. All right, well, on the phone is Senator Rick Jones. He was uh, behind the bill to ban the sale of synthetic marijuana here in the state. Senator Rick Jones, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. Thank you.
You're listening to Impact Exposure on You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Last week, Governor Snyder cited a bill to ban the sale of synthetic marijuana in the state. Here to talk about the bill is Senator. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm Emily Fox. Lindsay Liu and the Flat Ballets is a bluegrass band based here in Lansing. They'll be performing this Saturday as part of the East Lansing Summer Concert Series. Up next is an interview Impact's Emmanuel Berry did with the band last August. But first, here's an excerpt from their song, The Leaves Are Changing, when they performed live in studio. Let's get all snuggled up and hold on to each other. I know we can make it through if we just love each other. The leaves are changing. We're rearranging to make it through another long For those of you just tuning in, uh, we are joined in studio by Lindsay and Josh of Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies. And that was the song, (laughs) no, the the leaves are changing, correct? So I think one of the most beautiful parts of your music are, from what I've heard off of your CD and what you just played, is the attention you paid to lyrics. So how do you guys come up with with these ideas? Where where does it come from? Well, it's funny. Um... (laughs) Because just now when I performed that, uh, that was quite different. The, <laughs> the lyrics are quite different than they were, um, than they have been before. And that happens to a lot of my songs when I'm playing them. You know, it's funny. I write a song. They're my lyrics. And I've sung them a million times. And every once in a while, I'll get to a part and, and I'll think to myself, wait a minute. This is not how it goes. But you just kind of go with it and, and see, what, <laughs> see what comes out. But um, when I write lyrics... Uh, you know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I I just wrote a song uh, driving when we were we were touring out in Colorado, and I had to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and go drop <laughs> off these these two banjo players, of course, at the Denver airport. And on the way back, um, I started to. It was night. It was still dark when I was driving out, but when I was driving back. All the mountains lit up, and I saw what I couldn't see before. And and on the radio, there was uh, we were, I was listening to the Bluegrass Junction on on Sirius Radio, and there's a bluegrass song about being tied down. And 
I thought, I really like that that phrase. Josh and I just got married a, a few weeks ago, and, and I like Congratulations. it. Congratulations. <laughs> I, like, I like it, but it, but I like it in a different way than what the song was talking about. So I thought I started thinking about what my version of being tied down would be like, and it is, is quite different. Um, but I just think about, I, I, I had some parts in there that um, were inspired from some of the readings that were at our wedding and parts of our vows and... You know, things, if something strikes me and I, and I feel moved by it, a lot of times I'll, <laughs> I'll like, I'm either laughing or crying when I'm writing a lot of my <laughs> songs. Um, and if it makes me laugh or it makes me cry while I'm writing it, then I usually go with it. <laughs> so you guys have another tune to play for us. What are, what are we going to hear? Well, this, this is a song that I wrote after taking a few trips with Joshua down to the Capitol. We live pretty close to the Capitol in Lansing and, um, when all those protests were going on, it was really inspiring to me um, to see all of these people out with their voices doing what, what we as citizens have a right to do and, and standing up for the things that are important to us. Um, so I, I came home and sat out on my porch and put this one together. And we've been calling it the protest song, but... <laughs> I think I'm going to call it the power. All of these songs, it's they're very ambiguously named, as you can tell. <laughs> I basically name, have names to write are harder it. Than the lyrics. Yeah, the names are harder than the lyrics. <laughs> After once I write it on the album and it's there, then I guess that'll be the name. <laughs>
And that was Lindsay Liu and the Flat Bellies. Uh, that was a live studio performance as well as an interview from last August. Lindsay Liu and the Flat Bellies will be performing this weekend, this Saturday, as part of the East Lansing Summer Concert Series. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. Human trafficking has become the second biggest, biggest and second fastest growing criminal industry in the world behind drug trafficking. To talk about the rise in human trafficking in Michigan is Jane White. She's the director of the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So the Detroit Free Press ran a story this past weekend, and the headline read, Human trafficking is growing almost as fast as the drug trade. How prevalent is human trafficking in Michigan? Human trafficking is here in Michigan. It is um, evident. Uh, We have lots of cases that have appeared, but it is a very hidden crime. And what do you mean by hidden Well, it's around us, but we don't see it because of many factors, uh, whether it's labor or sexual exploitation. And when one starts looking at the complexity of human trafficking, we understand that while it appears to be international in scope, which would include the United States, it also is very focused in national kinds of things. That includes Michigan and includes all of us wherever we live. So you mentioned labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Correct. Um, can you talk about, you know, how are they both kind of equal here in Michigan? Do we see more of one than the other? We hear more attention to sexual exploitation. But in actuality, Michigan is also prime for labor exploitation. And, and how does that work, labor exploitation? Labor, um, both must have the elements of force, fraud, and coercion. In other words, I can be abused, but it is with um, um, trafficking has to involve one of those three things, which also includes psychological kinds of force, too. Labor is evident in manufacturing, uh, in agriculture, uh, in construction, in um, landscape kinds of things. Um, And it is where someone would uh, induce people to do something and pay them differently and limit their abilities um, to be free to do what they do, very often using international kinds of labor, such as from Mexico. So we've, we've talked before, and you kind of explained to me that people will, will pay people to come to the U.S. in some cases, let's say for labor, uh, human trafficking, give them all these promises. If you come here, you get this, you get that. And they come here, and they hardly get anything. Would you just think? Would you describe that as being most of the cases of human trafficking? Absolutely, that's that's an excellent example. Whether it's a single person in terms of a domestic case where someone is hired to take care of their children, promise that they're going to make uh, enough money to send money home to their families, um, may have they may have um, all, all kinds of promises. But when they come, they're exploited. They work seven days a week, sixteen, eighteen, twenty hours a day. Are limited in terms terms of their ability to go out of the home, um, are very cruelly. um, We've had cases where they're fed in the basement, fed scraps from what is left over. That's the one kind. The other kind would be uh, workers where there are a large number. In the United States, for instance, we just had 300 workers that came from the Philippines that were induced to Hawaii and spread all over the United States with the promise that they would be given a fair wage. The fair wage never occurred. They were given wages such as a dollar, a dollar and a half an hour, but they never really got them because they had to pay for their housing, their medical care, uh, their food. And and what happens, it is the scheme where they actually are in debt for what they do in terms of work. So it can be one person, it can be many people. So what would you say are some misperceptions of human trafficking? Number one, that it is not in our state, that it is not in my community, that it is not perhaps in my neighborhood. Let me give you one example. Uh, We have about 400,000 children who run away each year. 
Out of that 400,000 that run away, approximately 150,000 of those youngsters in the United States, and I'm talking about minors now, will be on the street. Within 24 hours of their being on the street, a pimp will come up to them and solicit them for sexual exploitation. And this is what we're talking about, that, 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 that kind of thing occurs. We, we can often tell, uh, within our towns where prostitution may be. Why do we ignore it and believe that it is of will that someone is involved in that kind of thing? And I'm not talking, I'm talking about minor kinds of things. Um, so number one, the myth that it's not here. The myth that um, it's somebody else's business, it's not my business. One, almost 50% of all cases that are identified as human traffic come from the community, whether it is the TV technician who goes into a home and finds there are 20 or 30 people from another nation living together and doesn't question, that's pretty unusual, what's happening here. That tends to be something that somebody is being exploited of. Um, that somebody, um, the second myth, I think, is that people are free to control their own lives. And we have no idea whether it's based on cultural kinds of misconceptions or the fact that somebody could have that much power over your life that they wouldn't tell somebody they're being exploited. Um, and those are two huge ones that we have to uh, fight. So what is the difference between slavery or prostitution and human trafficking? Slavery and human trafficking are the same thing. It's modern-day slavery, what human trafficking is. Um, and, and, the, and the third one that you asked me about, prostitution. Prostitution, yeah. Pro, um, you know, we still have to go over the fact of this force, fraud, and coercion. Why is the person doing this? What was the promise? What is really happening? The, the cases that have been recently involved uh, down in Detroit have uh, two new cases under Michigan law, which is very unusual for us to do because we just have had a new law on Michigan. Um, involved minors, 14, 15, 16 years old, and they were induced into um, the act of prostitution by being promised uh, a good life. Um, it, it's done very slowly if one, one sees how this is accomplished, whether it is the promise of um, jewelry, clothes, uh, a better place. It often is done with a boyfriend situation that there's a promise of love and security and those things don't happen. And you're talking about really serious things happening to kids. And are most, um, can you, can you kind of talk about the demographics of those involved in, in human trafficking, at least in Michigan? Um, the Detroit uh, Free Press article said children account for half of the victims and in our most cases people from the U.S. or are they usually Im- immigrants? Well, I'm, I'm not sure where that statistic came from. I can tell you that we have between 17,000 and 20,000 people internationally that are brought into the United States on a yearly basis as trafficking. Okay. How many reach Michigan? I can't tell you. We have a very bad track record of how to produce these numbers. I can tell you that there are between 27 million and 32 million people in the world who are slaves, who are victims of slavery as such. Um, So the demographics on that, there's one thing that I will never forget, and it is always in my mind, and that is the first case of human trafficking identified in Michigan was in the Upper Peninsula in a farmhouse that had to do with a woman being brought over to be a a bride. And she went through some horrible kinds of things because of the control that he placed upon her. So when we talk about the demographics of trafficking, that's the importance of understanding why we'd like to say, well, it's got to be the big city, certainly got to be Detroit. No, you remember that case in the UP. Mm-hmm. So how can people get involved with, with getting involved with trying to prevent human trafficking or where do they go if they can, if they notice a case? 
First of all, if you notice a case, there is a number that is really important for you to call, and that's the National Hotline Trafficking Line, which is one eight eight three seven three seven eight eight. That's a crucial number, and you don't even have to leave your identification. They bring that information back to the local geographical area. Second one is the federal people that FBI. Uh, ICE, which is now called Homeland Security in the state of Michigan, are knowledgeable about it. Hopefully your local police agency is, but that's not always been true, and that's an instance that we really need to work on. Two things are important here on the campus of Michigan State University. There are two groups who are very involved. One is called... um, uh, MALS, which is the Michigan Abolitionist Legal Society from the law school. And that's a great one that's been going. And then we have a student from Michigan State who is doing the Facebook for the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force, uh, Leah Steinhauser. And so we would hope that um, people might want to see that um, information that Leah is doing on Facebook as such. Um, those are ways to get involved with your church, with your civic group. Um, you have to understand what human trafficking is and how do I best best do that through many sources. Well, in the studio is Jane White. She is the director of the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force, and she was in to talk about human trafficking in Michigan. Jane White, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm Emily Fox. It's now time for the Michigan Storytelling segment. This week is a little special. For the first time, I am going to read something as part of this segment. I'm going to tell you a story about my grandfather. He passed away a week from today at the age of 84. James H. McKay was a genius. He graduated from college when he was 19 years old and had a Ph.D. by the time he was 24. He was professor of mathematics at Michigan State University, Seattle University, and Oakland University. One of his students included Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft. If you Google James H. McKay into your search engine, the first item you will find on the screen is the math proof he authored. My grandfather was a very smart man. However... Most of my memories of him was when he was in the midst of memory loss. My grandfather was affected by an intellectual's nightmare, Alzheimer's disease. I remember when I first noticed when dementia set in. Like all of our family gatherings, we eat wonderful food around the big dining table in my grandpa's house in West Bloomfield. I remember one family gathering when Gramps was sitting at the head of the table with his legs crossed like he always did. But this time, I remember a distinct look on his face frustration. He wanted to join the conversation but was embarrassed that he was starting to lose his words and couldn't communicate in the eloquent way he always had. It was at this family gathering that I had the last verbal conversation with my grandfather. I believe it was Thanksgiving in 2005. We went in a back room of his house with the piles of books and old paintings and artwork that he had either done or passed down through the family. While he couldn't talk about daily life in the dining room moments ago, he was flooded with memories in that back room. He talked at length about the paintings he used to do, his family, and the history behind the art. I remember when my mom told me I should visit Grandpa because it may be the last time, and that was more than four years ago. We sat in his room in the nursing home he was then living in for a few hours while we watched him sleep, thinking that that was it. But he ended up defying all odds and got better. He got much better. Rather than the frustrated intellectual I saw at the dinner table three years before, Grandpa became a playful, loving gentleman. He reverted to a youthful state, and I mean very youthful state. This is when the beauty happened. While you couldn't ask him questions or have a conversation anymore, we discovered new ways to make him happy, and that was very easy to do. He was like a child when we took him to places he hadn't been in years. It was like taking him to an amusement park for the first time in his life. Everything was so exciting and new. I remember him laughing at himself in the mirror at Walgreens and waving and giggling at all the babies in Costco. He got so excited when we would come visit him. When he would see my mom and I for the first time in a while, Grandpa would do a little jig and shout, goody, 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 or yay, 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 yay. And that was the most emotion I'd seen out of him my whole life. 
While his interactions seemed childish, his class and intellect was still there. He always said please and thank you and would obsess about keeping his shirt tucked in. I remember after a lengthy trip to Costco, my mom gave him some veggie straws to munch on while on our way to meet my grandmother and her husband at a seafood restaurant. My grandfather has an insatiable appetite, but for some reason he just held onto those chips in his hand the entire ride. And when I tried to get him out of the car, a task that could take up to a quarter hour, he couldn't get out because he didn't have a free hand to reach out to me. I remember my mom asking what the problem was, and I said Grandpa wouldn't let go of his veggie straws, and I sarcastically said that I was pretty sure he forgot how to eat. At that very moment, Grandpa shot me a look and shook his finger right at my face and said, Hey, 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 hey! He was mad. No matter what people thought or observed, Grandpa still had his wits about him. He was always full of surprises. Same as when my mom and I took him to see a movie and there was a scene where a husband was walking down the hallway. Even before I or anyone else in the theater realized he was there to open the door on his wife sleeping with another man, Grandpa shook his head and under his breath said, Uh-oh. He knew what was going on. Alzheimer's is a disease that many people fear, including a lot of people in my family. More than 5 million Americans have dementia or related diseases, and that number is expected to increase to 16 million by 2050. That's a huge number. That's why the National Institutes of Health and the Obama administration are allocating $80 million in research to find a cure in the next 40 years. But in the meantime, I want to tell you that Alzheimer's is never something I feared. In fact, I found a lot of beauty in it and learned a lot about my grandpa through the process. While his memory failed, his spirit was always strong. Watching Grandpa progress through his stages of dementia was never something that scared me. I bonded with him more than ever during his disease. While I couldn't learn about all the facts and wisdom he had stashed away in his brain, he taught me something very special. He taught me how to communicate without words, but with love. And it's not an easy task. I learned how to read how Grandpa was feeling by his body language, his handful of phrases, and his eyes, his beautiful, light blue eyes. While we couldn't spend time in conversation, we still made memories. The payoff is going to visit him at a time when most of his words are gone, having him wake up after a nap, looking me right in the eye, seeing the moment when he recognizes me, and hearing him say, Yay, 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 or goody, goody, goody. It even happened the Friday before he died. He was in the most pain I had ever seen him in. He wasn't making eye contact with anyone, not even the caretakers who were trying to get him ready for the day. But I stood in front of him, and he turned his head straight forward and looked right at me with those big, pale blue eyes. I wasn't sure if he was going to recognize me anymore, but I told him I wrote him a story, the same one I'm telling you today. And his eyebrows raised with recognition, his eyes opened wide with excitement, and while he couldn't smile or talk, he sent me so much love in that moment. No words were necessary. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 